0: Right, we are hopping back into our series, um, The Gospel According to Jacob. And our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 34, verses 1 to 31. Let's go. Join me in Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, who, had, who she had born to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hiv- Hivite, The prince of the land saw her. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, "'The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take daughters for yourselves.' You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hammer, deceitfully, because that he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. For only on this condition we will agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves. And we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males." They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city, because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, and all their wealth, and all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against and and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute?
1: Well, hey, uh, good morning. Good to be with you. We, um, Like Nicola just said, we are picking up the series that we started this summer the Gospel according to Jacob. And just a, beef, a brief beef, brief backdrop here to this series, why we're doing it. It's simply this Jacob is a profoundly, deeply broken person. He cheats, he steals, deceives his way to the top. And yet, God, in the midst of all of that, meets him. And one of the things about Jacob, At the very end of his life, he's a profoundly different person. He's changed. In fact, at the end of his life, in Genesis 48, he says this about God, that God has been his shepherd all the days of his life. He's actually the first person in the Scriptures to call God a shepherd. And here's what that means. In all of Jacob's doubts, his wanderings, his struggles, his questions, he looks back over it all and he says God has been there throughout all of it. And here's how that relates to us. See, some of us this morning, we may be quite unsure about what we believe about God. Others of us are at a point where we're maybe close to giving up on God. Or still some are wondering if God is ready to give up on us. Now, there are some of us this morning who are doing quite well. Life is going well, but you need to know this. There are going to be seasons in which there's going to be doubts and there's going to be struggles. And the message, at least one of the key messages of the life of Jacob is simply this, is that in the midst of our doubts and our struggles and our wanderings, that there's hope. And today, as we step back into the series, it's a little bit of a record scratch. It's abrupt. Um, The content is particularly challenging. There's uh, rape, deception, mass murder. Uh, If you've ever come to this passage uh, in Scripture and just reading it, One of the commentators put it this way, you've probably come to it and said, what is this story doing here? Which is why it's so rarely preached on. But one of the helpful things about Scripture is what Scripture actually tells us about itself. So consider this passage in the New Testament written by Paul to Timothy. He writes this in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And and notice that first term, all. All Scripture. Not some, all. And it says it's breathed out by God, though written by human authors, it's nevertheless the very words of God. And it has a purpose. To equip. And that means even this passage, though it contains difficult content, is actually meant to be beneficial to you and to me. And so that's the question, right? How does this passage supposed to equip you and me? And I'll I'll just put it this way: it's real simple. In some ways, it's not but it shows us how to walk in a world that is terribly broken. Do you feel that today? Do you feel the brokenness of the world today? This passage is here to actually to help you and to help me learn how to walk in it. And here's, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this at the end, but here's what I want you to Remember, it gives us an honest hope. We'll unpack that later, but it gives us an honest hope. So three things this morning. Firstly, there's a brutal honesty about our broken world. Secondly, there's two errant responses to this broken world. And thirdly, and lastly, there's God's response to a broken world. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. So Father, this morning, what we do not know would you teach us, what we have not would you give us, and what we are not would you make us, for the sake of your Son, amen. Well, firstly, the brutal honesty. You know, as the passage opens, it does so, as, as, as one of my friends puts it, you know, the Bible is just not a nice collection of nice stories and tales. There is a rawness to this passage. As Jacob settles down in the midst of the city of Shechem, his daughter, Dinah, goes out to see the women of the land, but instead is seen by Shechem, the prince of the land. And the text is succinct and brutally honest. It says, Shechem saw her, seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. Dinah is not the first, and she is not the last to experience something like this. Uh, Today, the CDC says that one out of every four women in their lifetime have been sexually assaulted. And notice notice how Shechem responds in verses 3 and 4 says this, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Shechem responds, and he glosses over it. When it talks about he loved her, it's, it's the type of word that means infatuation. He doesn't apologize. When he talks to his father about getting her for a wife, he doesn't even call her by name. She is simply to him a possession he desires. He glosses over it, and he wants to use his power to get what he wants. And yet one of the things that is so helpful about the Scriptures is how it paints with dark colors and sharp edges how evil this is. The underlying Hebrew, when it speaks of what is done to Dinah, it actually means to do violence to someone. In other words, the Scriptures themselves do not gloss over the rape of Dinah. And that should not be lost. Because in a culture like Shechem, in which this was normative and in which this was socially acceptable, the scriptures speak with clarity about the evil that has been done. But we also need to consider one other truth in this passage. And that's this this passage is found in the opening book of the Bible, in which it opens in which a good God creates a good world. And oftentimes, if we're honest, when we look out at the events of the world and the injustices that are done, one of the common questions is, is there a God? Or to be a bit more specific, is there a God like this God, the God of Scripture, in a world like this, where things like this Happen? In fact, this very question was one of the crucial hang ups for C.S. Lewis back in the last century. He was an atheist and he wrestled with this. And this is what he said He said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But then he wrote this, But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. And here's what Lewis is saying. All of us can look out in the world and we feel it. We feel that something is wrong. And yet, that very feeling says something about something ultimate in the world. And if you say, there is no God, then you may have that feeling, but that is all it is. What happened to Dinah isn't unjust, it just is. And therefore the world is simply the strong exploiting the weak. And that's why Lewis knew it. It's actually one of the reasons that directed him towards a belief in God. Because he saw how broken the world is and he had a sense deep within him, because he's made in the very image of God, That God is just. And listen, that's why the Scriptures actually paint with dark colors and sharp edges how broken the world is. But there's one other thing we have to consider, this this opening point. This, This scenario, this situation with Dinah, is actually something deeply problematic, not only with her, but in the larger narrative of Scripture. When Shechem says, get me this girl for my wife, Hamor, Shechem's father, approaches Jacob and in verse 9 says this, make marriages with us, give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. And the reason why this is deeply problematic is because in the story of Genesis, when the world, when, when God created the world and the world went out of sorts because of sin, God had made a promise to the line of Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 that from him, from that line, would come all the blessings in the world. That from him would come blessing. And now here's the problem. If Jacob takes the deal, if he's lured into this deal with Shechem and his father, then all of a sudden they are now assimilated into a culture into values, into a God that did not call them. And it means the very plan of God, his redemptive plan, is threatened right here. And so here's the thing you may ask the question, what is this doing in the Bible, this passage? And here's what one of my friends put it this way here's why it is Dinah matters. She matters. Why? Because there is a straight line. Why? Because there is a God who is at work in the world, in the midst of this broken world, working to rescue it and restore it. And therefore, Dinah matters. But secondly, we see in this passage two errant responses in a broken world, and they're quite common. Look at, look with me at verses 5 through 7. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with them. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Jacob hears what happens to Dinah, his daughter, and he's silent. He doesn't say a thing. When he hears his daughter has been abused, he's quiet. Can you imagine? Right right now, we, we find out later in the passage that Dinah's actually being held at Shechem's house. And she's waiting for someone to come. And her father's quiet. In fact, one of the literary features of this passage is the contrast between Jacob's sons, the brothers of Dinah and Jacob. They hear of it. They come in from the field, and they're indignant. They're very angry, and rightfully so, because of, of, of what's been done. And this is actually the way the narrator censures Jacob. And here's one thing that's really important. If you thought, you know, the Scriptures were something like, be like Jacob. (laughs) No. (laughs) If you thought the Scriptures were full of good models or good examples, you just have to keep reading. Listen, one of the things we've seen in the life of Jacob is how broken he is and how God has met him with grace. And even moments in the coming weeks, we will see him changed and transformed in wonderful ways. But accounts like this remind us how much he and how much we are in need of a God who is patient and kind. Ian Iguid, the commentator, made this statement. He said, We may not have the same the have the low of lows or the high or highs of Jacob's life, but nevertheless, like him, we need the patience and the kindness of a God like this. And yet, Jacob's response illustrates one of the errant responses to evil in this world, and that is to respond with passivity and quietness to the diners of this world. The indignation and anger that Simeon and Levi have, at least at this point, is a right response For they're rightfully looking at the crooked line and saying, that's not right. And listen, to the degree that we respond like Jacob to situations with the diners around us, with passivity and quietness, not filled with a sense of anger and indignation, it's errant. But the second errant response is what happens next. The the anger And the indignation of the sons of Jacob takes on a life of its own. In the account continues, Hamor, the father of Shechem, begins to advocate for intermarriage and promises prosperity. You shall dwell with us, he said, and the land shall be open to you. And in verse 13, it says, the brothers of Dinah respond deceitfully. They say to him, hey, We can do that, but only if you all get circumcised. Simeon and Levi take the sign of the covenant that God had given God's people, and they use it as a way to manipulate, to deceive, and to actually make the men of Shechem weak. And Hamor and Shechem and the rest of the city, they fall for it. And the passage says, three days later, when they're all sore from this, Simeon and Levi take their swords without any divine sanction, and they kill all the men of the city. And, and here's the irony, because <clears throat> you remember, the problem in this passage is they can't become like the Canaanites. They can't do intermarriage, right? But the irony is this they use violence, and in so doing, they plunder them. They take all their property and they take their wives. And don't you see? They have now just become the evil that they were enraged by. Later on, at the end of the book of Genesis, Simeon and Levi will lose position and power because of this very, very event. And you see, this is the second response that's errant to the evil and brokenness in this world. And it is to return evil with evil. And think about this for a moment. This can take so many different forms. It doesn't have to just merely be the sword. Think about it with me. When someone does something to you that is wrong and hurtful, what happens? Malice and bitterness grows in our heart towards them, towards those who have hurt us. It can often lead to words we speak to others or to those who have hurt us as a way of paying back what has been done. And do you see the cycle? The evil in the world just continues on. The account ends with Simeon, Levi, and Jacob reconvening. And Jacob, for the first time, the first time in the passage, finally speaks. And listen to what Jacob says in verse 30. "'You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. All Jacob can think about at this point is his own skin. There's not even a mention of Dinah and what's happened to her. And yet, the narrator poetically, structurally, gives a final word to Simeon and Levi. Look what they say in verse 31. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And Jacob's silent. And the passage ends with the ruins of this episode. I mean, this, this is a fire on top of a dumpster fire. The reader is left wondering, can this be repaired? Can this be healed? Is there any reason to have any sort of hope? But there's one more response. And it's one that you wouldn't notice because the chapter ends, but those markers were put in later. And even though Jacob doesn't answer, look who does. Look at chapter 35, verse 1. It says this, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God's response is go to Bethel and build an altar, a place of sacrifice. In the story of Jacob, Bethel was the first place that God met Jacob after he had cheated his brother out of his firstborn blessing. And God says, go back to that spot and build an altar go back to that spot where I met you with my grace and build an altar. And friends, this is a subtle response, but it points us forward to years later when another descendant of Jacob would come. When Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, would enter this terribly broken world And his response to the suffering and injustice and the evil in the world was not passive indifference. It was not being quiet. And it wasn't overcoming evil with evil. It wasn't revenge. Rather, in his first coming, it was a suffering love to offer himself on a cross, an altar, where justice and mercy could meet where He could take our sin and all of its effects in the world and actually provide a place of hope and healing, where He could actually meet each one of us with grace and kindness. And here's the beauty. See, don't you see, this passage is brutally honest about the terrible brokenness of our world. And yet, it points us forward to a God who in the middle of that brokenness enters into it in order to heal it. So here's the main question. How do we live in a world like this? How do we live in a world where there is rape and there is murder and there's exploitation, and the list goes on. And the passage gives us what I would just say is this. It calls us to an honest hope. And here's what I mean. Oftentimes, when you hear the word hope, it's very shallow. It's the type of hope that looks out in the world with a glass half full. But you'll notice this passage does not do that this passage does not gloss over anything. It shows us what the world is like in all of its rawness. In other words, it calls us to deal with the world as it is. To not soften the sharp edges. And it gives voice to the injustices done to the likes of Dinah. Because there is a straight line. And one of the beautiful things about this is for those who get to walk with those who have walked through situations like this, it allows that individual to acknowledge with tears and grief, as my friend puts it, to know that healing will not come quickly, nor will it come easily. But also, in the midst of that honesty, there is also a hope The late pastor John Stott put it so well when he said this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of His There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self justification in such a world as ours. And and, and here's what this means let me speak for a moment, particularly to those who have suffered like Dinah, who have been treated by men like the Shechems of the world as an object of passion to be exploited. Or have been treated by men like Hamor as a bargaining chip for economic purposes and gain. Or have been treated by men like Simeon Levi as a source of moral outrage to meet with revenge. Or men like Jacob, treated with passivity and quietness. Would you look to another man, Jesus Christ? who loves you and has suffered with you and has suffered for you." One of the most profound examples of living with an honest hope in a broken world was back in 2018, Rachel Denhollander, who was the first woman to publicly accuse Larry Nassar of sexual abuse was the last of more than 150 women to speak at his sentencing. And here's what she said. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. Do you see how she paints with dark colors the evil that has been done to her and so many? And yet she speaks about Christ. She goes to Bethel. And she says, even men like you, men like him, can find grace there. And yet also notice... She is not consumed by revenge. Do you see that? Because she knows that Christ has died and Christ has risen and he has promised to come again to deal with all that is broken and wrong. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we admit um, that we cannot fix this terribly broken world. In fact, we're honest with ourselves. We are complicit. We're a part of it, and we need your mercy and your kindness to meet us. We ask you to help us live with an honest hope to not be passive or quiet in this terribly broken world, but also not to be consumed by anger or malice, but help us to be a people that walk in a way that honors your Son, the one who has come and lived and died and risen, And will one day come again. And so we pray even now. Maranatha. Lord Jesus come. Amen.